Next on ReachMD, Voices from American Medicine, featuring perspectives, challenges, and triumphs from physicians currently in practice in the front lines of healthcare. Now here is the host of Voices from American Medicine, Gary Epstein. Many physicians believe that the future of their collective profession is a matter too important to be left solely in the hands of politicians, so they immerse themselves in organized medicine and policy. Joining me today from Lawrenceville, Georgia, is practicing neurologist Dr. M. Todd Williamson. Dr. Williamson is also the spokesperson for the Coalition of State, Medical, and National Specialty Societies and the immediate past president of the Medical Association of Georgia. Dr. Williamson, welcome to Voices from American Medicine. Thank you for having me on your radio show. It's a pleasure. Before we talk about your work in organized medicine, which I'm very interested in, let's talk a little bit about your practice and what you like about it, what you wish you had more time for, some challenges. Well, I practice neurology in a fairly large county. I think it's the largest county in Georgia. I have two partners. We work full-time, probably work more than we would choose to work, but it's just sort of our duty. We're blessed, and we have a very busy practice. We practice general neurology. We're right beside a very large, very excellent medical center, Gwinnett Medical Center, and we have great specialists in all fields around us, and we enjoy taking care of our patients. We uh, have a great relationship with the primary care physicians in our community, and we follow our patients longitudinally. We're close to a tertiary specialty center, but we don't have need of it very often. We have great specialty medicine where we are, and we cover our patients 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year, and have great staff and a great relationship with our patients, and we really enjoy it. You know, we always wish that we had more bodies around to take care of patients. You know, it seems like there's never quite enough primary care doctors out there to refer to or not enough rheumatologists to refer our patients to when we need rheumatology care. There's a few other specialists that we could stand to have more of around here. Uh, Always stand to have more primary care, more general surgeons. I think that's a problem nationwide. Several specialties are underserved now, but we have a good time taking care of our patients. We're very blessed. And how did you actually get into medicine in the first place? Do you have role models, inspiration? Well, that's an interesting question. No one in my immediate family ever went to college. Only a couple of people in my extended family ever finished college. So I really didn't have any role models. I grew up in a pretty small town of about 40,000 people. When I was a kid, the physicians in town were very well respected, and I always felt like my parents admired the physicians in the community and spoke highly of them, and I'm sure that affected me to some degree. I always felt drawn to the biological sciences. I wasn't so interested in the physical sciences, and I I didn't think I wanted to go into business or as a physician, you found yourself running a business, which is kind of ironic, but I knew that I wanted to go into something that involved applied science, and pretty early in junior high school, I identified medicine as really my choice, and was fortunate to go to Emory University and uh, went to Emory Medical School and even did my residency and fellowship training in clinical neurophysiology all at Emory and really enjoyed it, got a great education. I was going to do surgery when I went to medical school and I found that my brain worked more like that of an internist than a surgeon and pretty much if there's an opposite to the way that a surgeon, you know, is forced to make quick decisions in the OR, the neurologists are probably the more contemplative, slower decision.
decision makers in all of medicine. So I ended up on that spectrum. And it's just kind of uh, funny the way those things happen. You know, it's sort of like Forrest Gump's life. You know, you just yeah. wander around until yeah. you find the shoe that fits, you know. So you said something interesting to me about the notion of how you are a physician, but you're also running a business. I'm curious, did you feel prepared to run the business? And did you feel that the medical school training was adequate with respect to that? The word feeling mortified comes to mind, horrified. There's absolutely no training. I got absolutely no training in running a business whatsoever. It really is amazing how students go into residency, they come out of residency, you know, back in the day when I was a resident, you know, at Grady Memorial Hospital, we worked, no kidding, 100 to 120 hours a week, we were in the hospital. And the vast majority of that time, we were upright with our eyes open and learning how to take care of sick people. But uh, I didn't get one minute's training in how to run a business. It's a treacherous world out there. Well, and I'm even finding to that end that one of the reasons a lot of physicians are citing that they're joining these large group practices is because it's the running of the business that's taking up so much time and energy. You're exactly right. People run from that. They don't run to it. I joined a very busy operational practice really so that I wouldn't have to worry myself with starting all that stuff from scratch. But the reality is you have to look at it. You have to make yourself do that stuff. If you don't, you have no one to blame but yourself when it doesn't go well. And the business of medicine has gotten enormously complex. And almost undoable. It is almost undoable. And only the folks out there now that are in very large groups or are extremely nimble and bright can survive. A lot of private practices now are really not making ends meet. And, you know, I guess everybody sort of wants to cry and say, poor, poor, pitiful me. But it is the reality that very, very good doctors are not able to keep their doors open in private practice because the business of medicine has become nearly untenable. Oh, and the reimbursement side of it, if you're taking care of, you know, Medicare patients is a whole other aspect of that. It's almost impossible. And I know we're facing a potential crisis there, which we should talk about. I, in fact, would like to transition a little bit and talk about how you began to get involved in organized medicine. I have always been what we call in the business a joiner. You know, if you just drop me in the middle of a town, I'm going to join some organization. That's just the way I think. And when I finished at Emory and came to the community in which I live, I sort of felt it was my natural duty, my civic duty, my professional duty to join organized medicine. I really didn't understand it at all. My partners were members of the county society and the state medical association, the medical association of Georgia, of which I'm very proud. I started going to the county meetings and showed some interest and, you know, you, you sort of get pushed up the ladder, you know, because there's not a lot of people around waiting to do these jobs. And so I ended up serving as the county society president for five years, very shortly after I came to the community. And then someone suggested that I be a delegate to the Medical Association of Georgia and on and on and on until someone said, hey, Todd, you need to run for president of the Medical Association of Georgia. And then I did that and really enjoyed it. It was a fabulous opportunity. And while I was the president, the Obama administration hatched this plan for uh, national health care reform. And, of course, that changed everything. And I ended up spending most of my time focusing on that uh, during my presidency at the Medical Association of Georgia. I happened to think that Every physician needs to join organized medicine and be active. The challenge that we've had in organized medicine is 
the growth of specialty organizations, which is a wonderful thing, and, and all of the fabulous specialties that we have now are a blessing for our profession and our patients. Professional organizations such as mine, the American Academy of Neurology, is a fantastic resource. However, they're not exchangeable for traditional mainstream organized medicine that represents all physicians across all specialties. And so doctors, I believe, to, in order to best serve their profession, need to remain interested and engaged in their state medical organization, their local county society, and in the American Medical Association for our profession to flourish in the best possible way. And, of course, physicians like to join their professional organizations, too. Mine is the American Academy of Neurology. But you can't just do one or the other. That just isn't going to cut it nowadays. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Voices from American Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Gary Epstein, and joining me today from Lawrenceville, Georgia, is neurologist and the spokesperson for the Coalition of State Medical and National Specialty Societies, Dr. Todd Williamson. So tell me a little bit more about your feelings on the role of government in healthcare today. I know a big question, but you've certainly been quite active of late. This is certainly the question of the hour. I believe, first and foremost, that the government needs to provide a safety net for people that are disabled, that are unable to work, unable to provide medical care for themselves. I believe that the government definitely has a role in caring for our Medicare population, but I don't think our government should be involved in the day-to-day health care of most Americans. I believe that once you start down that road, something very insidious and something very unfortunate happens. The patient physician relationship is hindered and damaged. We talk about the patient-physician relationship almost in hallowed terms in medicine because it really is a, a unique entity. The relationship that a patient has with their doctor is a very personal relationship. There's a lot of trust involved, and there's no room for input from other people in terms of medical decision-making. The medical decisions, in my opinion, should be made by the patient with their physician serving as trusted advisor. The more we let any third-party payer, whether it be the government or commercial insurance companies, get involved in that relationship, the farther away from making their own decisions the patients are placed. And what do I mean by that? Well, if every time a doctor stops to write a prescription, they have to think, what's on this patient's formulary? The patient may not be getting the best care. If the patient has to turn to a book to look and see who's on their plan, they may not be getting the best, most convenient care in their local community. If a doctor has to petition an insurance company for six months before a test is approved, the patient may not be getting the best care. And now we're hearing things like with comparative effectiveness, the government's talking about telling physicians what therapies they should and shouldn't use. In some sense, haven't we replaced one problem potentially with another with this Obamacare, if you will. I mean, I think that most patients and frankly, a lot of doctors would say that the insurance companies are doing that now. And instead, we're suggesting that the government should get involved. Is there another direction or solution? Well, that's a great question. You know, the answer is long, but the short answer is you can sue an insurance company. You can't sue the federal government. 
And, you know, I would also say two wrongs don't make a right. Currently, the milieu with private insurance companies is a disaster. Insurance companies have a role to play. In the beginning, insurance was really insurance. It wasn't meant to pay for every trip to the doctor. It was meant to cover catastrophic hospitalizations or costs exceeding a certain limit. And at that time, when insurance first uh, was conceived, patients had more of a role in paying for their medical care. We've lost the sense that patients should pay for the medical care, and that is a troubling, troubling thing, and here's why. When patients pay for their care, they become the arbiters of quality, they become the monitors of fraud and abuse, and they become the medical decision makers. When patients don't have the ability or the right to pay for their medical care, they lose all of those things, and somebody else takes all of that over for them. You're right about that. It's very interesting because there isn't a good or service out there that I can think of easily that you walk in, you receive that service or cup of coffee from Starbucks, whatever, and walk out without paying for it. In medicine, that's what happens. And, you know, it's easy to say, well, you know, doctors just want to be able to charge more, make more. You know what? If it was just about that, there's a lot better ways to make money, quite frankly. I mean, this is about continuing a profession that we know and love. And when I am in need of a physician, you know, at some point in the future, I want to be able to make my own medical decisions. And I want my doctor to be unhindered when it comes to deciding what's best for me and my family. And we're moving at a fairly rapid pace away from that scenario right now. And, you know, as I say, two wrongs don't make a right. We need serious antitrust reform in this country so that insurance companies can't continue to merge and become these giant multi-billion dollar companies with basically carte blanche and, you know, negotiating with employers and doctors and really controlling the show, you know. I think uh, government takeover of healthcare has only succeeded because we were already in such a bad place with a very unfavorable insurance milieu. With over 400,000 regular physician listeners to ReachMD, I'm wondering what you would tell our listeners who would be interested in doing something, what they should do to try to affect change. What's the one thing they can do? I would say support our patients' ability to spend their own money on their medical care, and that is really at the heart of this whole issue. When patients are in the driver's seat, of paying for their medical care. And that doesn't mean they have to pay the whole bill. The government can still be there. The private insurance companies can still be there. But when patients are able to direct that money and control that money, you instantly see improvements in quality. You see the best possible protection against something that is fortunately very rare, fraud and abuse. And patients get the best individual care. That's terrific. I wish we had more time to talk. This is a great conversation. I'd really like to thank you, Dr. Williamson, for being with me today. Dr. Williamson joins us as a practicing neurologist from Lawrenceville, Georgia, and the spokesperson for the Coalition of State Medical and National Specialty Boards. I'd also like to thank the Medical Association of Georgia for nominating Dr. Williamson to be our guest today. Dr. Williamson, thanks again so much for being with us on Voices from American Medicine. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. You've been listening to Voices from American Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, featuring perspectives, challenges, and triumphs from physicians currently in practice on the front lines of healthcare. Voices from American Medicine is hosted by Gary Epstein.